I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning, if you would, to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to begin this morning in verse 5. Verse 5. Verse 1 says this, What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. You know, the church in America has a problem with a word, and the word I would use is celebrity. Um, the problem has increased in, popula- in, 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 in terms of it being a problem because of the kind of high level of access that you have to listening to many people who in gaining popularity also may gain followings and on and on it goes. At the end of the day, I don't think that the celebrity issue for the church has been a helpful thing. In fact, I think Paul would argue from this text that the celebritizing of the church, if that's a word, uh, in fact can distort what God is seeking to do through his church. You know, the church in Corinth lived in a context where orators and public speakers had a celebrity status. They were the rock stars of their day. They had a lot of clout. They were highly sought after. And there were many cults of personality, people that were devoted to certain individuals and to their teaching and to their style. There was, at that time, a preoccupation with superstars that was having a negative impact on the church. And that is the concern in this context that's driving the Apostle Paul to write. People were saying things like, I'm with so-and-so, I follow so-and-so, this is my favorite individual, my favorite teacher, my favorite preacher. You might think of that as being an odd thing, but the truth is, I think if you look at the culture that we live in, we live in a culture that is severely divided along the lines of personality, is it not? Note in our country how loyalty to political parties and political leaders I'll take you a step uh, further into the realm of conviction. Uh, Loyalty to sports teams. um, Collisions amongst MMA, mixed martial arts fighters. Explode into newsworthy encounters out of the ring because of loyalty. You see it with uh, music stars, particularly in the realm of rap and pop culture. There is this constant... Loyalty that leads to fighting and I got to be better than you and my fans are better than yours and all this infighting and division that at the end of the day is not helpful nor is it anything new. Paul here addresses how human loyalties are dividing the church into fan clubs and those fan clubs had the capacity to impact and wound the body of Christ and it is that concern that causes the apostle Paul to take up this issue and to address it in such a substantial and strong way. And see, what had happened in the, in, in the context of this circumstance, Paul found himself being drugged into the debate. If you go back, back to verse 4 of this chapter, though just the verse preceding where we're beginning today, you'll find that there are people saying, well, I'm of Paul, I'm, I'm kind of a Paul guy, and some saying, well, I'm kind of an Apollos guy, I have a, a preference for and, and taste for his teaching. And the result of that was that there had become begun to be a schism or division in the body of Christ that was needing to be addressed. So in verse 3, Paul kind of 
sets and, and brings into this context from where Doug ended last week. He says, since there is jealousy and strife among you, namely related to personalities, likes and dislikes, since there are, is jealousy and, and strife among you, you are acting like mere men, meaning you're operating like people who do not have the Spirit of God. All right, that preference that was leading to division uh, was causing the church to appear just like every other organization in the world. There was nothing markedly different about the church in Corinth because people were dividing up and announcing loyalties over all kinds of things in the culture and within the church. And it is this issue of the division in the church that Paul is compelled by the inspiration of God to address. Here's the question I want to ask you this morning. How do we resist the tendency, the natural tendency, to kind of form up into fan clubs? How do we fight that preferential attitude one over against another? How do we defeat that? Think of verse 5. The first thing that Paul's going to say is, you need to do a recalculation. So verse 5, here's what Paul says. His attempt to address this issue of party spirit in the church. He says, what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? And what's fascinating is that he doesn't say who is Paul and who is Apollos. He kind of drags them into the realm of, of the neuter in, in the original language. And it's, it, it, it's as, he addresses them as instruments because he's going to recalculate who he is. He's not a person of importance He's a tool or instrument in the hand of God to do the work of God. And Paul would say at the end of the day, and that's it. That's all I am. So notice how he kind of clarifies this. What is Paul? What is Apollos? Here's what Paul says. We are only servants. The word here used here simply is we're table waiters. We're people who walk up to the table and say, can I get you something to drink? Or people that walk up to the table and say, what would you like to eat? So what is Paul doing? Paul's saying we're not some high-flying people worthy of great honor. We're humble servants of God, here to meet your needs in the context of the body of Christ. That's a recalculation, because what have they had done? They had said, Paul's my hero, and Apollos is my hero. I pledge allegiance to Paul, I pledge allegiance to Apollos. And they would then begin to debate what made one better than the other. And Paul is sickened by it. He says it makes the church look merely human. Not a temple in which God dwells. And Paul then says this. He says, we're merely servants. And then these words, through whom you believed. So what, what are Paul and what are Apollos? What defines them. Here's what Paul would say. We're simply conduits. We're tubes through which the grace of God has flowed into your life. Now, first thing you can note is this. The conduit is an essential instrument to get that which is valuable to where it needs to be. Okay? So Paul's not saying we're not part of what God is doing. He's not saying that. But he's saying, if you make us what God is doing, you have made a miscalculation. It's not about us. You should not go away from a Sunday morning service thinking about how well things were presented. You should go away thinking about Jesus. About who was presented through an instrument that God has chosen to do that. And Paul is not, 
He's not self-deprecating. He's not destroying himself. He's not making himself irrelevant. He's just putting himself in a proper place, a recalculation. You go back to chapter 1, and what does Paul say? Paul, an apostle, there is something of importance in that. Called by God. So the thing that gives value to an individual who serves in the church community in a speaking capacity, the thing that gives value is the call of God and the message that comes through them, not the individual. So our allegiance is always towards God, and when we think about individuals to the degree that we give them an exalted position, that becomes a problem. And it is to that that Paul speaks in this text. I think what Paul would say is this, the miracle of belief in your hearts in Corinth is owing to the power of God that poured through a weak vessel to bring powerful life-changing truth into your life. Folks, that's how each one of us should see ourselves. We go out of the world every day. We go out and we go into our home. We go into a, a school setting. We go into a context of work. What are we? We are servants through whom God wants to work. We are essential, but we are not determining our value by that. Does that make sense? That the issue is what God uses us to accomplish, what God does through us as an instrument in his hand. That's what's powerful. You know, the, the, the artist brush that paints the Picasso is not to be honored. The artist is honored. And the same thing is true in the church. God takes paintbrushes and paints amazing and beautiful things. Credit does not go to the brush. It goes to the master who wields it, to the artist. That influences and affects how we see our lives. We're simply instruments, tools that God, the master craftsman, takes and begins to make beautiful things out of. And that's what Paul, Paul is simply arguing for a recalculation. He says, all we are is a hammer, we're a saw, we're a screwdriver, we're a paintbrush. Don't get all caught up in us. That's not the purpose. So, how does Paul drive home this recalculation? He's going to do it through two analogies in the text. One is agricultural and one is architectural. Okay, one is drawn from farming, one is drawn from construction. Okay, and both are going to help us to see how this recalculating process takes place. So let's look first at this argument from the agricultural analogy. So verse 6, God assigns the task. So verse 6, here's the task Paul had. Paul said, I planted the seed. And then he says, God gave Apollos a task also, meaning that each of us has an important role to fulfill, but it's never about us. Apollos watered. Okay, and that's all the further he's going to go in the analogy. There are people that plant seeds. There are people that do irrigation. Okay, both of them have a God-given call, a role as God assigns. It's a grace-filled role, a grace-empowered role that God gives. I want you to notice how he, how he kind of settles them down then. Verse 6, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So that any impact, any influence, any difference that is coming about through what is spoken is owing to God himself. So now, here's how it works in the agricultural analogy. Sowing and irrigating, those efforts, 
done in our culture. I look around where I live and I see farmers plowing and sowing in fields with expensive equipment, hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment that's being used to put seed in the ground. But every farmer that drives that tractor to plow the field and to plant the seed and to spray the insecticide knows something. When they go to bed at night, they know that they are not responsible for the germination of the seed. Hopefully. Okay, that work of germination is what happens when people fulfill certain obligations or responsibilities. And that's how Paul sees himself. I sowed, Apollos watered, God made it grow. You know, uh, a friend in our church, Tim Matthews, who's, he and his wife have been, Linda, have been very tied up with caring for Linda's mom. If you want to keep them in prayer, uh, their mom, Linda's mom is going through a very difficult season. And I would appreciate your prayers very, very much for strength as they seek to uh, serve mom and dad. But Tim Matthews is a, I would call him a farmer. He has a hay farm and he grows some corn. Okay? Now, I just said it wrong, didn't I? Tim Matthews grows hay. Tim Matthews grows corn. And none of you reacted. No, you know what Tim Matthews does? He plows a field. He sows seed. In our context, there's rain. It's not an arid culture like Israel is. And so there's rain that comes, and that's the watering. Tim Matthews doesn't grow seed. He doesn't grow squat. (laughs) He doesn't grow corn. He doesn't grow hay. He works a field. He plants a seed. And by divine design, something awesome happens. And folks, that awesome thing, that germination of the seed and that production of fruit is not owing to Paul and Apollos. That's what they want you to see. I do not have to be some amazing, flashy tool for God to use my life. I just need to be an ordinary person surrendered to a powerful God who through me then does the extraordinary. That's how Paul sees his life. He sees the church in Corinth as a miracle of God's grace. People rescued out of darkness. The light of their life turned on by the power and grace of God. Forgiven, cleansed, restored, redeemed. And then a shining light in a dark city like Corinth. Here's what Paul's saying. I can't take credit for that. I just sowed the seed. He's, and please, it's not false humility. Paul's not groveling. He's just well-adjusted. He's done a calculation. In that process of agriculture, there's only so much a farmer can do. And when he's done what he can do, he must turn the results over to God. I want that to encourage your heart today. We are ordinary people doing ordinary things with extraordinary results. That's the Christian life. That's what the Spirit of God takes up residence in your heart to do, to take ordinary things and make beautiful things out of them. That's what God does. And I want you to notice one other thing that Paul's going to kind of throw in here in verses 8 and 9. Look what he says. The one who plants and and the one who waters have one purpose. What is the purpose? To grow a harvest. So Paul's saying, you're dividing us by saying, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paul. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, folks, listen, we're after the same goal. 
We're working the same field. And by the way, the text will say at the end, the field belongs to God. It's his work. He's invited us to participate with him in this work that's humbling and amazing. And as we depend on him, things that we could never do, extraordinary, are done through ordinary people surrendered. That's Paul's argument. If you put the focus on me, Paul says you're missing the point. I sowed seed. I didn't grow it. Apollos watered. He didn't grow it. God made it grow. And two times in this text, you find this emphasis. End of verse 6, end of verse 7. God has been making it grow. Only God who makes things grow. So anything good emerging out of the life is owing to the work, mercy, and grace of God. It, it brings to mind the text in John 15 where I think Jesus kind of is expanding on this theme. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. So don't get all obsessed with the branches on the vine. Get obsessed with the vine that produces strength, that gives courage, that gives faith, that says, when I stay vitally connected to Jesus, God will, through that ordinary connection, do extraordinary things. And Paul's saying, I hope that causes you to recalculate. Now, verses 10 to 15 he picks up the second analogy, which is the analogy from architecture. Verse 10, he says this. By the grace that God has given me. So I just, just stop there for a second because that grace God has given, and you can back up a few verses, he talks about the grace that God has assigned to each one. He's hinting at a topic that he will do extensive work on in chapters 12 through 14, the portions about spiritual gifts. Okay? So Paul is conscious of something. That the gifting that he has been given for speaking the word of God is owing to a call and gift of the grace of God that enables effective service. An ordinary man is able to accomplish extraordinary things as God graces and gifts. Okay, and it's true for every one of us. Okay, and let that settle in and change how you see yourself. You see, this, this flurry of, of affection for high-flying people diminishes your life. It's the danger of it. It is a miscalculation to say that Tim Hoff, because he stands up in front of the church on a Sunday morning, is essentially more valuable than Barbara Duvenek because she sits in the pew. Paul would say that is a misnomer because the work that is being done through us is by the grace of God given to us. That grace of God enables each of us to make a difference and to have an impact and to do things that each other can't do because God has assigned to each one his task. Find your lane, your God-given lane. Get in it and pursue it for the glory of God, not for the praise of man. Okay, find it and do it with all your heart. Paul says, by the grace of God given to me, I laid a foundation. So what were, the, what were the Corinthians doing? They were giving Paul credit for the entire superstructure of the church in Corinth. Paul says, I, I just laid the foundation. It's a crucial part of what happens. Everything that grows up on top of it is oriented to that foundation. But Paul says, I just laid the foundation. I did it as a wise master builder, not according to what Doug talked about the last couple of weeks, the wisdom of the world, its way. He said, I did it as a wise master builder, meaning I was heeding the advice of God as I did the work of God ordinary and something extraordinary emerged out of it. 
Now, I want you to notice what he says. I laid the foundation and someone else is building on it, meaning there is a team at work doing God's bidding. And folks, here's what God is always doing. If you study through the New Testament, you will always find this emphasis on plurality of people doing the work of God and a de-emphasis and an understanding of the danger of isolated Christians trying to do the work of God. You know what happens when you praise people and exalt people? You drive them into isolation because they have to protect their image. Because if you see them for who they really are, you will be disappointed every time. God wants you to work in the context of community. He called Paul and Apollos to be a team. And there were many others that were working it. That's clearly Paul's implication here. And he doesn't want Apollos to be devalued by the exaltation of himself or anyone else within the church. He wants everyone to know that they have a God-given part and a God-given design. Now here's what I want you to notice very quickly is this. Verse 11. Verse, end of verse 10, each one should build with care. Why? For no one can lay any foundation other than the one which has already been laid, which is Christ. And here's what happens. Paul's going back to the original foundation. Paul's going back to what should drive everything we do. It should drive our church planting. And the reason God drew us here originally was that there could be a place established that would preach the Word of God in Washington, New Jersey. That was the goal. That was the driving desire, to make Christ known. Here's what Paul says. Verse 11, For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has already been laid. By who? By God Himself. The foundation that He laid for the church was Jesus Christ. you You can go to the to chapter 1, and you can find that the preaching of the cross, the work of Christ, is foolishness but to us who believe it is the power of God. You can go to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. What does Paul say? I desired to know nothing among you, foundationally, except Christ and Him crucified. He said, I wanted to be sure that the church was built on the foundation of Jesus, that Jesus would always be central to the stability of what the church is seeking to accomplish. Christ and his cross work is central to everything that God has called us to do. It's interesting, isn't it, that when you go to 1 Peter and you go back into some of the Gospels, you hear this statement, that the builders have rejected the chief cornerstone, the chief mark of the foundation, which is Christ. You know what Paul's saying? I want to be very, very clear that the foundation of Jesus is not missed. That I laid a foundation and I left. You know why? Because I wanted you to be all about Jesus. Who alone can rescue, save, transform, and change people's lives. Can I make this observation for you this morning? If the work of Christ is not the foundation of the church, of any particular church, then that gathering is not a true church. A true Bible-teaching church will always lay great emphasis on the person of Christ. It will always make much of and exalt the glory and crosswork of Christ. It's a way you can test a church as to its God-ordained purpose and function. 
do they make much of Jesus? Now, that foundation results in a call to care. And here's what Paul says. Each one should be careful how he builds. Be careful how you function in the context of the body of Christ because everything that's being done by everyone in the body gifted by the Spirit is building something that is very precious to God. And what he's going to say in verse 12 and 13 is very powerful and it is a warning. He says this. If anyone builds on the foundation using gold, silver, and costly stones wood, hair, straw, their work will be shown for what it is. So here's what he's basically saying. Everybody who participates in doing the work of God, okay, is using materials, and those materials indicate the value of what is being accomplished, okay? Wood, hand, stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. If you want to get into all kinds of lists about which one's more valuable, have at it. Okay, at the end of the day, it is very, very simple to discern what's being said. There are things that we can do that have lasting value. And there are things that we can do that are a waste of our time. Okay, it's that simple. We always need to be concerned as a church that the things that we devote ourselves to actually end up adding to that which is and exalting that which is most precious, which is Christ. Okay, so he says, be careful how you build, because some of what we do may have no lasting value. Now, notice the way that he says this. He says in verse 13, so different people working, they're using all kinds of materials, their work will be shown for what it is. And I think this is a statement primarily about the quality of what's being done. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hand, stubble. Easy to see. There's a contrast in the value and stability of those things. Okay? Each person's work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. The day here, I think it's clearly talking about the glorious day that we sung about earlier, the coming of Jesus, from whom nothing can be hidden. No, you and I may have secrets with people, but we don't have secrets with God. And in the analogy, because he's using building materials that were common in Old Testament temple and tabernacle, okay, he talks about the day of the Lord when the Lord will come and assess how the work in his church is going, because it is his building, it's his field, it's his people, okay? So fire, in this context... He says, uh, the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, verse 13, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Okay, what does fire do? It exposes the true nature. In context, I believe it's this, namely the motive, the driving impetus behind what's happening in our lives. It will, it, it will, it will, it will expose us fully and completely, indiscriminately, It will show our work for what it really is. Some of what we we do may have no lasting value. What is done to serve self or to win the applause of others perishes. And in my notes, I just have this, God help us. God help us. Help us to see what really matters. Help us to praise and exalt the things that God is doing, not people. They're instruments that God is using, and we should appreciate. Okay, so it's not to say you can't appreciate or, or encourage someone. You should. But the response should always be, praise God. Praise God. Humbled, 
that he's using us to do his work where he's called us to live. Some materials will survive a fire test. Some will be consumed. It is a sobering assessment. I want you to think with me of the discussion Jesus had with the Pharisees. He's talking to the disciples about true worship, and he's talking to them about authentic living. Here's what he says about their praying. He says the Pharisees like to go about in their long robes, praying out loud to be seen by men. Okay? Here's what Jesus says. He discerns their motive and he says they got their reward. Meaning the applause of people that says, I saw Dave Mercer walking out in front of the church in his nice suit and he was praying. And I say, hey Dave, good job. Here's what Jesus says. Dave, you got yours. And that's all you get. That's sobering. You know what that means? That means it is possible for me as a believer to waste my effort. It is possible for me as a pastor to do this for your praise. I want to tell you something. That is downright scary and sobering. Because the test that God applies is not discriminating. And he cannot be fooled. You know, when we built this building, one of the uh, most challenging things was the sprinkler system. Okay, you, may, you all may not know it, but this building is, is combustible at some level, at least according to the authorities and powers that be. We don't see a lot that can burn in here, but it's combustible at some level. Okay? There's something in here called a sprinkler system. Okay, so every, I think it's every eight to nine feet on a grid, there has to be a sprinkler head that provides protection. If all of a sudden, uh, you know, Rich Reinhardt's shirt spontaneously combust, okay, all, it'll rain down showers and it'll protect you, okay? Now, it's an important feature of a building. The inspector for that feature of our building required a pounds per square inch test at 220 pounds per square inch. Okay, for the man who allowed us to work under his license doing a lot of the work in here, uh, he said, wow, there's a good number of people working on that. that they're, they're, you, know, they're, you might have leaks, you might have issues, right? And I, so that, that stood me up, okay? I, so why can't, and I think uh, Steve Alpo told me what the normal test was like 120 pounds or something like that. And I was like, we get street pressure of 120 pounds coming to the building. Why do we need to crank it to 220? Here's what it did. It gave me angst. Because I knew that inspection was coming. And that inspection would put to the test the work that had been done. I'll never forget that day, because here's what we had to do. We had to pump the pressure in the building, all of the sprinkle lines, to 220 pounds per square inch. If something breaks, you don't want to be standing there when water comes out at that pressure. All right? It's not like a shower. Okay? It's like a perforator. Okay? It would hurt your body. So here's what happens. We pump it all up. We've got to wait for two hours. We are walking all around the building expecting there's going to be a problem somewhere okay we had one head right over that way that uh was seated improperly that one leaked so we fixed that one and then we had one elbow in a back room that was cracked because it was over tightened okay probably my friend rich because he's aggressive and strong okay so that that was it okay two hours later the inspector shows up. i'm going to tell you something the fact that that inspection was coming made me it made me nervous. It made me apprehensive. 
So we're here, his deal is to do a walk through the building and to do a flow test out the back. Did the flow test, passed that with flying colors, repressurized the system, and we're walking around looking for any problems. Uh, there, there's a prayer room right here, and there's a hallway that angles down. There's one head right above the door, okay? So I, I'm walking. Everything's going great. I am starting to feel good, okay? Like, I think we got this. I think we passed this inspection. And there's such a relief when the inspection comes. I'm like, okay, it was okay. I'm standing right by that door looking up at the last head. And I kid you not, the inspector's standing three feet from me. All of a sudden, out of that head comes this boosh of water. It lands on my eyeball. And I'm like, <laughs> and I realized he didn't see it. He wondered why I was crying, but he didn't see it, okay? Uh, I, I looked down at the floor, and I saw a little wet spot like this on the floor. So since I'm a good Christian pastor with integrity, I said to him, hey, there's a leak here. We got to get that fixed. No. I wanted the white sticker, not the red sticker. <laughs> so, <laughs> I stuck, I stuck my foot on that wet spot. <laughs> this is my confession, okay? I stuck my foot on that wet spot, and he was a larger man, and uh, he's, he's getting around me, and I'm like, I'm, I'm like stepping back. <laughs> like, I would not move my foot because I wanted to pass the test. Okay. The, I was able to bluff that guy okay? And I'm embarrassed to admit that, okay? It sealed itself up because a lot of times that's what happens, a little water, oxygen, corrosion. It'll, it happens a lot with sprinklers. You look in buildings, you'll see that. And I was under the assumption that that would happen. So, and it did, okay? I also like being right. Another one of my sinful characteristics. But the point of the illustration is this. The inspection changed function. It meant that we gave greater care. At 120 pounds, there's not a lot of risk with metal piping threaded together and the kind of clamps that were used. But when you take it to 220, Steve, all Paul and I, Steve's a fire official, we were asking, like, why, why do we have to do that? It, it, it changed how we function. Here's what I want you to realize. If you realize that one day, you and I will give an account to God of ourselves and God cannot be bluffed. I can't step on the stand. It will change how you live. Your work will be inspected. And God, the text is powerful because it says God will reward each one according to what they have done. I think the upshot of this text is something like this. In the context of the church, don't get caught up in the praise of people. Get caught up in the pursuit of integrity so that your life will make a difference and not be wasted so that God can take the ordinary vessel, however clean, and use it to do extraordinary things. That's why Paul says, don't praise me. Oh, I like it, but I should. Paul's uncomfortable with it because he walked close with Christ. Verses 14 to 15 tell us that there is a final judgment. And in that judgment, there is something called loss and reward. And it all relates to how the life was lived. The motive for the service given determines the value of the service that is given. I don't know about you, but I want to end my life with no regrets. I hope that I will. This leads to a sobering 
warning about the building that's being built, verses 16 to 17. And, and you, if you read through Corinthians, hope you're reading through it, you're going to find, I believe it's 10 times that the statement, don't you know? And don't you know is an indictment of the church. It is, it, it, it is a bit accusatory. Okay, Paul is, is pastoring them, is exhorting them, he's challenging, he's correcting, because that's what a pastor is supposed to do. He's supposed to confront my sinful, selfish tendencies and call me to righteousness in God's path. That's what Paul's doing here. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? He owns it. We're just workers. It's God's house. And that God's Spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone, this is strong, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. What does that mean? I'm going to tell you what it means. If you do battle in the church, you're doing battle with God himself. Okay? And that is sobering. And it's encouraging. Because what it means is that faithful, acceptable service is possible in the house of God. But I need to be careful. I need to be careful that I don't get drug into things that relate to party spirit or preferences. Paul is mystified by their distorting and destroying of God's church via partiality towards leaders. It is disturbing to him because it is God's house, God's temple, God's church. It was the place in Corinth, folks, in a pagan culture in the ancient world. It was the place where God resided when his people were there. And Paul wants them to capture that. And I was in this building yesterday and I was, I was just walking through, I was studying in the conference room and, and I was just walked into the foyer. And I, I, I'm not usually in here on pause, okay? If I'm in here, there's usually something going on and, and, and something happening. That's when I'm usually here. Yesterday was different because I came here to study instead of at home because my wife had a prayer meeting at the house, so I said, I'm going to go out here and study. And I came walking through the center hall, and I, I've stopped and looked. And I, I, I don't know about you, but I am genuinely humbled by what God has given to us as a church in terms of the facility. I am. But here's the thought that ran through my mind. Empty on a Saturday morning with no one here. It's just a building. It's all it is. It doesn't do anything. It didn't sing for me. It didn't praise God for me. It did not display ministry. And it will not do that till we are here. Because when you drive by this building, hopefully you see it as the building in which the chapel, the body of Christ, resides. And when we are here, Paul says, you are God's temple in which God lives by the Spirit, which means what? It means for Washington, New Jersey, the chapel is a place where God desires to manifest himself to a needy world. That's task. That's function. 
and we come together to manifest corporately God in us. And, and, and the thing I want you to notice in this text, it'll be different when you get to chapter 6. In this text, it is the you in plural that are the temple of God. It is the you assembled, you working together. So we come here to learn, to grow, so that we go out and be more effective as the body of Christ distributed into this community to make a difference for the glory of God. So as we go, we represent the one who in greatest glory has taken up resonance in our hearts. It's never about individuals primarily. It is always about the team. It's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Doug. It's not about James. It's not about Tim. It's about God. I don't know if you've ever thought of this, but I'm going to just say it to you simply. God does not need celebrity he doesn't he just needs willing people that's the danger of celebrity isn't it because you and i start looking at people in positions and we overvalue miscalculate them and as a result we undervalue ourselves we start thinking in this way if i could then if i was like so and so then may god help you May God help me to be fully surrendered and to heed this serious warning that the temple that God has called us to build is His. The conclusion is 18 to 23, and I'm just going gonna to fire through this fast. Do not deceive yourself. There's the warning. Don't miscalculate. Does that make sense? It starts there, it ends there. Don't miscalculate. Don't deceive yourself. If any of you think that you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may really be wise. Abandon your foolish, sinful thinking about what's really wisdom. And submit yourself to God and find that the preaching of the cross, that is foolishness, is in fact the power of God to change lives. Preach Jesus. He's the foundation of the church. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. This addiction to knowledge doesn't always change things. Some of the most advanced cultures in the world have done the most horrendous things. And that is true in the country that you and I live in today in respect to some specific issues that are out there right now where what is clearly evil is justified. Namely, the taking of lives. It seems so nuanced and wise, but it is an affront to God. And though that may seem enlightened and tolerant, God says it's not. You see, Psalm 14 one says this. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I have no accountability. There is no day of reckoning coming. So have at it. You know why Paul, why Paul can summarize that it just comes to foolishness, it comes to nothing? Because you can't make sense of life without a creator, God. You can't. And the exhortation that Paul ends with is verse 21. He comes full cycle. He says, so then, since the wisdom of man is folly, and since the wisdom of God rules... Here's what Paul says. I love this. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. 
And then he's going to give them a rationale for why they should hang on to that command and stop it. Why? Because all things are yours. He's speaking to who? The church. You, indwelt by God, have a fullness that will blow your mind if you can get away from your lesser attachments to people and focus more on God himself. Look, folks, here's the reason you shouldn't adore me. Okay, in other words, because my wife does, okay, which is a miracle. And I only need one person adoring me, okay? But secondly, if you adore individuals, leaders, speakers, personalities, you will, you, you will do damage to your understanding of the riches that you have in Christ because you will try to cling to two things as valuable. And when you do that, you necessarily devalue one of the things, if not both of the things that you were holding on to. Here's Paul's explosion. This, I'm not even going to try to unpack this text for you in detail because I think it simply is an explosion, a doxology based on theology, a word of praise from a word about God and Christ himself. He says, all things are yours. And to me, it makes me laugh. He says, whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ. And Christ is of God. I don't know if you get that, okay? It's rather heavy and rather powerful. What has Paul just done? He just transformed their slogan. Go back to verse 5. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Paul flips it around. What does he say? All things are yours. You don't have to be of Paul. You don't have to be of Apollos' group. Why? Because all things are yours. You have, from God, eternal and unlimited resources that include the Apostle Paul and that include the preacher Apollos for your benefit, a gift from God, that include Peter, who had seen the risen Christ. The world itself, life, death, the present, and the future, all are yours in Christ's work, and Christ is of God. To have God as your Father ties you to limitless resources that will outlast life itself. It's why in this he points to temporal things and temporal people, to permanent God, to life and death and eternity. All of it. He is giving you a comprehensive picture of God's care and love for his children. Hope that will settle into your heart. You belong to him, and along with him, you are richer and more loved and enriched than you can ever imagine. That's why it is a shame to place affection on other things and have competition for the blessings that God alone can provide. This theology leads to worship. So while Paul is bo- is, prohibits boasting, in the same sense, what is he doing? He's encouraging boasting. Glory in Christ. Glory in the fullness of his cross work. Let it transform your thinking. Let it give you a recalculation that if I have Christ, I don't need other allegiances. I don't need people's praise. In Christ, I am overwhelmingly and richly blessed. So he says, no boasting. And he says, oh, and do boast. Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory, that I should boast in anything but the cross of Christ by which my life has been changed and by which God is using me to change the world in which I live. Here's my conclusion. 
when ordinary people surrender to the hand of God, Christ-exalting work and miracles of enduring value occur. His work is always done by faithful, ordinary, surrendered people. And I hope you will leave here today with a recalculation. Exalting finite men always eclipses the infinite value of Jesus because only Jesus can truly satisfy anything that threatens any assessment of a preacher that moves him toward the place that only Jesus deserves is problematic. The aim of the Holy Spirit, as we will see in this text, is to make much of Jesus and to strengthen the church. May God help us to treasure Christ in this sort of way. He alone as soul satisfaction. He alone as deliverance so that we would, in the end, glory in the one to whom nothing can compare. I want to encourage you to claim this in the midst of your current struggle. You have Christ. You have the people of God to help you. That's what this text is saying. You have God, life, death, eternity, the world, all of it, through the cross, comes under the authority and power of Christ. All he has, life, death, and everything, is available to his child for your everlasting good. From which, from which Romans 8 says, nothing can ever separate you. You know what we need? We need Jesus. Only Jesus. And anything that threatens or competes with him needs to go. So that we can enjoy the treasure, the everlasting, abundant treasure of Christ. That's why the Bible says, to him be glory in the church, both now and and forevermore. God help us. Help us to love and exalt Jesus. Help us not to be drawn into petty preferences and personality and popularity thinking that it has any lasting value. Christ alone. God alone. Spirit alone. Jesus only Jesus. You're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ. Here's what I want you to know. Salvation, deliverance, freedom from your sin is found through repentance and faith in Christ alone. No works, no effort, no merit. Jesus, only Jesus. If you've never trusted him, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. While we sing this closing song, I'd have encouraged you to come up front, find myself, find Pastor James, and say, today, I sense the Spirit of God calling me to trust in Jesus, only Jesus. Father, do that work today. Glorify Christ. Exalt Christ so high that people are drawn to Him. We pray in His matchless name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.